0: Hello! And welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with my colleague Emily Peck of Axios. Hi. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires, who writes at the New York Times and is also a freelance writer for other places. Hello. We are going to talk about freelance writers, and specifically the ones who are members of the WGA union, who are on strike what is going on with the to strike is it a good idea what are the economics we will unpack all of that we will talk about monetary policy and the fed and whether they're going to raise interest rates or not what difference it would make we are going to talk about china and whether the big ceos of the world are going to be able to countervail against the g7 and all of the anti-china sentiment that is coming out of the u.s government and other governments We have a Slate Plus segment on luxury amenities in movie theaters. It's all coming up on Slate Money.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker,
2: you'll find what you came for here
0: So all three of us here are writers, right? But none of us are on strike. Emily, you I can't shake know. your head on a podcast. No one can see you when you do that. <laughs>
2: they they know I'm shaking my head, Felix. I'm a writer. I was, for a time, a member of the Writers Guild when I was at the Huffington Post. But now I am ununionized labor. But, but even yeah.
0: even if you were a member of the... Writers Guild at the Huffington Post, you still wouldn't be on strike. The writer's strike is an interesting strike because it's basically just self-employed writers who are going on strike. Yeah. And that's kind of amazing because it's one of the very few um unions that I can think of where they actually have power and they're they're a strong union and they can go on strike effectively without actually having an employer to strike on. You know, it's just like they're, they're their own employers. They're self-employed almost entirely. And they just say, you know what? We are collectively going to stop working for you. And that can be quite effective.
2: Yeah. I mean, they're self-employed, but they're 100% dependent on these big movie studios and now big streaming outfits such as Netflix. Right.
0: So that's, that's the big thing. The main reason for the strike is that the old world of movie and TV writing had long-standing norms in terms of this number of writers per show and how much they would get paid and what kind of residuals they would get and all of this kind of thing. And the streaming services don't work in the same way. It was, you know, how would you calculate residuals, all of that kind of thing. And ultimately wind up paying less, For writers than tv and movies and the writers are seeing the writing on the wall and saying we don't want to earn less but obviously the world is moving to a world of streaming so we're gonna go on strike is that elizabeth more or less the 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 tldr there
3: yeah and there there are There are a couple of other things happening there. One thing that happened with, you know, the increasing popularity of streaming is that the way that writers work on these shows changed a little bit. Um, There's a good post online by George R. R. Martin, who wrote Game of Thrones, about how he got into TV writing, and he sort of describes it as an apprentice-type job, you know, where you come in as a junior writer and you get exposed to all these aspects of production the more you rise through the ranks. And so he talks about having learned... Things like, you know, how the shows get budgeted, um, you know, how different aspects of production affect the way that you write the story and what you can write into a story. And what a lot of the streaming shows do now is they'll they'll hire writers for a six week, what they call a mini room, where basically you have a showrunner and some senior level producers who are running, you know, the, the, the show, but they'll bring in the writers for six weeks to just scope out what's gonna be in the episodes, you know, how the season's gonna uh, progress. And they get paid for those six weeks. And usually, you know, there there is some consternation online about the fact that, you know, a typical payment might be 5K a week, which sounds like, you know, decent chunk of money, but it's not when you consider that that's before taxes, before you have to pay an agent and manager and lawyer and, you know, all this other stuff. But also you only get paid part of it at the end of the writers room and then generally you get paid out several months later for the rest of it so you might end up working for 6 weeks on something and it'll take you 6 months to fully get paid and you're not paid to actually go off and write the episode that you're in charge of
0: so who writes the episode
3: the writer still has to write the episode but they're not paid extra for that you know they're paid so they're not paid for months at a time and you know you could end up being in maybe two mini rooms a year and you just do the math there. It's just not sustainable for anybody. And it makes it impossible for junior writers to kind of come up through the system because they don't get that exposure to production anymore. So what the WGA wants to do is just com- completely abolish
2: mini and, rooms. And then and and what instead?
3: And go back to a, a more traditional way of writing these shows, the, the kind that Martin describes, where you know there is a bit of a ladder. Uh, you're paid for all the time you're spending on the show. Um you know, that in in a lot of cases you would be working full time on a show for mm-hmm. as long as it's in production. You know, the thing about the mini rooms is you're paid for part of the development and to deliver a script for usually an episode, uh, but it's time delimited and it doesn't really take into account the work that you're putting into it after you're in the writer's room. So Plus the usual, you know, disadvantages of being a freelancer. You know, you 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 don't have benefits, you don't have protections in a lot of ways. Wait, well, you're,
0: you're so so wait, but that's that's not up for negotiation, right? I mean, the, it, they're still going to be freelancers either way.
3: Oh sure, yeah, but the the, the mini rooms themselves and the structure are, are part right. of what's being negotiated.
2: But I guess the studios would argue that times are tight, that streaming doesn't make as much money as, you know, network and cable TV did for them. Um, Their stocks are down, right? That's the argument they're making. Is there anything to that?
0: I mean, times are tight, right? And profits are down. And also the other thing which is very important to note is the amount of money in aggregate the writers are being paid is through the roof. The streaming boom has massively increased the number of writers who are members of the guild and who are writing for streaming and for you know, TV and movies. So the total amount of money being paid by the industry for writers is up substantially, even as the median amount of money earned by writers is kind of stagnant to down a bit
2: but i mean the streaming boom is over now like they're starting to make less shows now so that probably won't be true going forward i would assume it's already not quite as true as it was
0: it's it's uh, it's not over actually i mean that's actually the weird thing that like the the you know netflix might be making slightly fewer shows in the united states but there are still massively multiplying streaming services if you look at something like max right which is recently rebranded from HBO Max and look at the sheer number of channels there are within Max, all of which have just insatiable demand for new content. There is a lot of new stuff appearing. It's not the stuff ne- necessarily that is going to enter a, you know, the popular consciousness and have slate mini seasons devoted to it. But it, there's a lot of just sheer tonnage of material being produced in the way that is still as as a level much much higher than what we saw in the in the days of tv it's i I, you know it's the you know maybe coming down a little bit from its peak but it's still way above pre-streaming
3: i think it's actually it's it's a lot harder to get stuff greenlit right now i mean part of what was happening during the boom was that Shows were being commissioned and bought left and right, and then they would just never get made, or there would be a pilot, and then the series would be canceled. And now there's less of that. I think people are really making you know, big bets on prestige shows that they think are really going to hit, and they're not paying for and then killing off things as much.
2: There's some other interesting stuff going on with this writer's strike Um one thing I wanted to bring up is there's more solidarity now with writers, directors, and actors than there was. Um, the last big strike was 2007 before streaming was a thing. That wasn't what the concerns were back then. And there was like tension between the directors and the writers. And now there's like a lot of solidarity. And I was talking to Axios's uh, Tim Basinger, he covers this pretty closely, and he was just saying, that everyone in the industry sees streaming as kind of like an existential threat basically that the current state of the content biz yeah there's there's the very the the career paths of these people feels at stake like you can can and and I think that's interesting because it kind of is like the last holdout um when it comes to content makers like this is like journalism has already, and writers, nonfiction writers, book writers, like we've all been decimated by by digital already, right? Like you can't have a most people can't have like a middle class career path in journalism. The music industry has been kind of rocked, I think, and decimated also by digital. But like content, TV, it's taken a way longer time. And I think in part because, or maybe mostly because it is unionized and they they can actually fight back and fight for better pay. Whereas The other industries I mentioned, there is no there's no union fighting fighting for people.
0: Music is interesting because again, what you see in the music industry, if you look at the total amount of money being funneled to songwriters and performers, it's up substantially. Like the streaming boom is huge. If I'm paying, you know, ten dollars a month for Spotify, $120 a year, that's Probably more. I mean, that is more than I ever typically used to spend on, you know, CDs or LPs or whatever. No in way. The year. Yeah, I never used to buy so many of those. Like, it's now just like a, and pl- plus, of course, all of the ad-supported stuff. Every time I listen to something on YouTube or anything like that, the if you look at the total amount of money going to songwriters and performers, it is up substantially. But also, the number of songwriters and performers is up. And again, you have the same phenomenon where the, you know, the average and the median are going down, even as the aggregate are going up.
2: That makes sense. And you could see the same in like, in journalism, there's, there's more people doing it. Oh, absolutely. But making way less money, right? Exactly. I live in a part of Brooklyn that I think of as dad band
3: land, because every third person is in an actual commercial touring band. And, and I just anecdotally, I hear the musicians talk about this stuff and the extent to which, you know, they don't make money directly off the music anymore as much. You know, it's, it's you have to tour more. You have to come up with, you know, inventive merch lines, things like that, because the, the music itself mm. isn't paying as well.
0: Right, but 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 the but the point is that there are more you know dads in bands in Brooklyn than there ever were. It wasn't like there was some Halcyon era where like half of Brooklyn was making lots of money from being in dad. Yeah, bands. that doesn't sound like, like now. Now we're in comfort. Now to the we're in a world though. where.
3: That's not,
0: <laughs> but that's exactly right. Like you know, and we're seeing the same thing with the writers' strike, which is it's it's cold comfort to any individual writer to be told that you know the aggregates are up because all they care about is what they're making individually um and conversely from the point of view of the industry they're like they're saying like there is this insane digital content more and we can never feed it enough stuff like emily and i both made the transition from print journalism to digital journalism and the um just the order of magnitude increase in the amount of content that needed to be created in order to be a player, you know, in in this industry, the sheer amount of stuff you need to produce in digital is so much higher than it ever was, you know, in the olden days. And films and TV are still a kind of like artisanal uh, industry. Um, You know, Hollywood moves very slowly, and they still have Writers' rooms and producers, and all of these like old fashioned uh, structures that are slowly being dismantled by the digital industry because they just need to be able to produce more content more, qu- more quickly. Obviously, the writers don't love that. But as a Brit, you know, I listen to all of these stories of writers' rooms and unionized contracts and residuals and you know, just look at the sheer number of writers who work on any given show and I'm like, that's insane. You know, like in, in the in the UK, if you look at like a UK T V show, it's like two people sitting in a room and just writing the script. And that just doesn't happen. That's not allowed to happen in the UK. I mean in the in the US.
3: Well, this is that's happening though because of things like mini rooms. So you get a credit on the show, but you're not there during production. Like that's, I think part of the reason why there's the strike has been effective speaks to what Emily was just saying, which is that there's a lot more solidarity. But some of the solidarity is is very self interested. If you look at these uh, prestige TV shows and movies that people want to be a part of, they're very heavily writer driven. I mean, Succession is a prime example of that. And in the case of a succession, you know, the writers were involved in, you know, every step of everything, you know, from, uh, you know, evaluating the music and the costuming and they were on set and they were interacting with the actors. And that's not always the case anymore. And so I think there, there is a bigger incentive for people all the way down the production chain to be in solidarity with the writers on this one because you just end up with better quality shows and movies and, and better parts for the actors.
2: And quality is really important in TV and movie writing. Like, yes, there are good TV shows and bad TV shows, good movies and bad movies, but they're all kind of good in that they all work. Like, in order for a movie to get made and, and shown in a theater, it has to, you know, be coherent, have a, have a story, like, make sense, be have continuity. Like, these are hard things to do and pull off, and, like, you need quality people to work on them from the writing to the production. It, it just seems like it would be a shame to... For these, for these writers, not to get their demands met,
0: don't you
2: think? No
3: more.
0: Okay, I am I am shocked, (laughs) shocked that Emily Peck has come out in favour of the unions who are on strike. I mean, you could knock me over with a feather.
2: (laughs) I mean, at first I was kind of like, wait, so they're working in these mini rooms on on shows that, you know, it's no longer a 22-episode show. It's like an 8- or 10-episode show, and so they're making less money. Like, doesn't that just make sense? That, that actually is a question, actually. I'll just put it to Elizabeth. So they're working on fewer episodes and making less money, and they're like, we should make more money? I don't quite get that part.
3: Well, it's not just the, the fewer episodes. It's the entire structure of mini-rooms being normalized within the industry where you, you're just getting lower pay for more work, Categorically, and and you get it takes so long to get paid. You know, it makes it uh, creates a lot of uncertainty if you're a freelancer, where you, you might work on two mini rooms a year, and so people are having to take you know other jobs that are not writing jobs just to make ends meet in a lot of cases. And we always hear about the outlier situations where people make a ton of money doing TV writing, but. The average writer doesn't you know it's it's much more akin to- the
0: average writer makes a ton of money. The average writer the average union member makes two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year like now there is a lot of variation in there, but the mean is really high. the median is yeah
3: well. well, the median is is more what I'm talking about because all it takes is you know a bunch of well-paid people at the high end that are very small percentage to pull the average up um, but if you look at the credits in any TV show you, Look at and you see twenty writers in the credits. Most of those people are not getting paid. Two hundred on the other hand, if
0: you look at the credits for a TV show and you see twenty people, twenty writers, you're like, why the hell are there twenty writers? Again, like, this is me. This is the Brit in me going like, I have. There is a long tradition of amazingly high quality British television, and I don't think there has ever been a show in British history which has had twenty writers. It's just like it's, it's just. I don't. I don't well, necessarily that's, that's think like, that. More writers equals better writing, and, and we do seem to have. We do seem no, to No, but this, wound this up is, in the stage of the negotiations where one of the demands is like we've got to keep these minimum size of the writers' rooms, and so long as the writers' rooms have a minimum size in terms of yep. the number of writers, like that reduces the amount of money there is per writer, right?
3: Yeah, that's not how it works though. It's, it's more akin to a newsroom deciding that they're going to eliminate all of their staff writers and keep one editor and just use freelancers for everything else. So there's a lot
2: of freelancers, but not necessarily.
3: Yeah, a lot more bylines, but not necessarily, you're not necessarily spending more money or expanding your staff.
0: Well, no, no one's on stuff. Everyone's freelance. We understand that. I'm just saying that the union does have pretty strict minimums for the number of writers per show.
3: I also, there's a very big difference between being staffed on a show where you are considered staff. Like, yeah, you, you're probably technically still an independent contractor, but you're being paid for everything that you're doing on the show. So you go to a production meeting, you're getting paid for that. If you're consulting on something, you're getting paid for that. If you're interacting with the crew, that's, you know... With the mini rooms, you're just getting paid for that six weeks of development, and then the final. Oh, so it's like I I get that. that. So
2: it's like going from like you are really an integral part of the show as a writer to we just bring you in when we need you, like a plumber.
3: Yeah, not even that. You know, it's it's more like you you deliver your version of the script, and you may not even be involved in how it gets revised or anything like that.
2: So we're in, it's the about a month of the strike going on. And I don't even think the parties are at the bargaining table. So this could go on a while. Yeah, I think,
0: the, I think the streamers in particular have enough content in their hoppers to be able to just keep on streaming what they've got. One of the interesting differences between linear TV and streamers is that on linear TV, you really do need to produce new stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't have a self respecting TV channel that is just showing only reruns. Whereas with streamers, like, you know, it's fine. Netflix has a million shows it can newly resurface to the top of the homepage and will be unfamiliar to almost all of its viewers. And it doesn't need new content in the same way.
2: Yeah.
3: I think they they do though. I mean that that's part of what made Netflix successful when when streaming started was that they started producing original content that really works for them, and also you know if the strikes are shutting down production on some of these things. You know they're losing 200 to 300k a day for that, and and it's not insured either. That's just money out the door.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. That's a new new tactic you're talking about, Elizabeth. Where. Um, s- people go to live productions and pick it in front of there to try and shut them down so that's not that's that's a little different right because that's not writers being on strike it's writers disrupting productions of things that were already written yeah.
0: and, and it also to Elizabeth's point you know there is still a large number of shows including shows like Succession where having writers on set is part of how they produce the show so mm-hmm. if the writers are, on strike, then they can't produce the show because those writers are necessary for the production of the show. Um, You know, I I saw that the second season of Severance has, like, paused production because that's one of those shows. Oh,
2: I like Severance. That's sad Sad for me.
0: Oh, my God, Emily. You (laughs) should should come out against against the strikers because you're not going to (laughs) get Severance season two as quickly Uh, as we thought. No.
2: I think the... (laughs)
3: <laughs> Pay the severance writers. Then, then
0: <laughs> we should move on. Let's talk about Fed policy.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. So we had another monster, huge jobs report this week, 339,000 new jobs created, something like that, Um, came in the wake of pretty hot inflation numbers. And yet the Fed looks like it's not going to raise rates in a couple of weeks. And the current conversation is an interesting one. It seems to be around this question of skip or pause. Um, Emily, do you how how do you characterize the difference between a skip and a pause?
2: Uh, it's the same thing. so okay, so <laughs> basically, a skip means that at the next meeting, the Fed is not going to raise rates It's going to pause. it's not going to raise rates, <laughs> but it might raise them the next time after that, thus, a skip because it's raise stop raising, raise again. So that's a skip. Whereas a pause would be a more definitive stop. <laughs> do I have that?
3: Yeah, pause, I guess that it's about expectations. If if you think that the, everything's going to adapt to the current interest rate hikes, you argue for pause and, and assume that inflation will come down naturally. And then if you're arguing for skip, it's that you expect it not to do that. And you're going to have to raise rates in July.
1: But
2: the Fed has been saying all along like we're going to be watching to see what financial conditions are doing and make decisions based on that, which to me is like we could skip, we could pause, we'll see. See how it goes kind of a thing. So skip pause seems like a weird fake thing to talk about cuz people don't know how to deal with the uncertainty of what the Fed has been saying.
0: So, one way to think about it is just the size of the rate hike or the size of the average rate hike. At the beginning of the tightening cycle, the rate hikes came every meeting at 50 basis points apiece. Then, you know, as things, as we got into the tightening cycle, those 50 basis point hikes were reduced to 25 basis point hikes, but still a 25 basis point hike every meeting. So, if you want to, reduce it by half again so it's like 12 and a half instead of 25. Then what you do is you do a 25 p- 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 basis point hike every other meeting. You know, and you're still kind of raising rates but you're just doing it more slowly. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. And is so that that's what a skip is? What, and
0: so that's the skip, right? Is the market was pricing in like basically one hike between June and July for a while. And then as the Fed officials have been coming out and saying they Thinking about doing a skip. Basically, what the market did was just decide that that one hike was going to happen in July rather than in June, which is not a big deal. But what it does is it preserves optionality, right? It gives them an extra month to just see how the economy is doing. And because the one thing they don't want to do is go too far and then be forced to pull back, right? They would much, they have, they have the luxury of time. Now it's not urgent that they hike rates. And so they can hike rates a little bit, pause a little bit, do a little bit more, pause a little bit until they're sure they're in the right place without having to just like go storming ahead and then go, oh shit, we went too far and now we need to cut.
2: Yeah, it's like you're filling up a bucket or something. And at first it's really easy to fill the bucket because it's empty and you can just shoosh the water in. But then as you get closer to the top, you have to be a little careful not to spill exactly. over. Exactly,
0: and, and when rates were at zero it was very clear that they were too low. You know, when inflation came up, they were like, oh, shit, we need to raise rates. Um, We don't know how high we need to raise them to, but we know we need to raise them to a a level that's significantly higher than they are right now. Now, with rates at 5%, it is not clear that rates are too low. You know, 5% counts as tight monetary policy, and there's argument about how tight it is, but it's definitely tight enough to be slowing down the economy already. So we don't know how much effect that's having. And so does it need to be higher than 5%? Does it need to be much higher than 5%? These are very subtle decisions that the Fed needs to make. And so I think it's just going to take its time with them.
2: But inflation is still high. You know, The Fed was supposed to hike rates so that inflation will come down. It has come down, but it's still not at the two percent target it's um it's like a little under five percent so
0: so the quest so the question is do you keep on hiking rates until inflation is at two or do you keep rates high until Mm -hmm. inflation is at two because rates are now high and quite plausibly given that inflation is coming down quite dramatically just keeping rates high could be enough to bring inflation down
3: there, there, was at least there were a couple of Fed governors who expressed concern about uh, uncertainty around how credit conditions are evolving because there are you know non-monetary factors that could contribute to inflation going down, and we still don't really understand the full ramifications of the spring's bank failures and how it's going to affect uh, lending.
0: Well, wait, when you say when you say when you say non-monetary factors, what you, you mean? You mean the, the credit conditions of the monetary factors or the non-monetary factors?
2: Non-monetary factors. Non-Fed factors.
3: So
0: no. what, what are the monetary factors?
2: If
3: cred, credit tightens and it, it becomes harder to obtain a yeah. loan because banks are more cautious in the wake of the bank failures, yeah. then that could pull inflation Yeah, but isn't, isn't, down, isn't that
0: it. the main mechanism why, of, of what Fed's hikes do? Like if interest rates rise and that causes credit to tighten?
3: Yeah, interest rates are only one factor, though, in credit tightening. So there's also the number of loans that are approved, the size of the loans.
0: I feel like it's that. all the same thing. Like, Terms. ultimately, like, you know, when, when the Fed raises rates, the aim is for banks to lend less and for borrowers to demand fewer loans. And, you know, it's six of one half a dozen of the other. Like, it, you know, partly borrowers will demand fewer loans because the rates are higher. Partly the banks will lend less because you know, they, they have less appetite to lend to borrowers who they're now worried might not be able to repay loans at those kind of interest rates. Uh, but the I feel like that mechanism of credit tightening is exactly the main mechanism that the Fed uses to try to bring down inflation. It's not some kind of um, unanticipated other thing.
3: Yeah, well, I, I agree that rates are the main factor, but there are non-rate conditions, especially in response to things like bank failures that are not just interest rate driven. They're about, you know, banks being more conservative. No, but the, but the bank failures generally. were
0: entirely interest rate driven. They were 100% a function of interest rates. But yeah, I mean, I think like we're, we're not I mean, really disagreeing here. I think we, we agree that the rise in interest rates has, has caused Tighter financial conditions by design, and you know maybe it, they didn't want uh, the bank failures to happen, but I don't think they were super upset that the bank failures happened because they were part of like trying to bring down the risk appetite in the economy. That's the whole that's the whole purpose here.
2: Um, I mean, <laughs> where the point is that the Fed hiked rates a lot, and it takes a while for those uh, rate hikes to kind of play out in the economy. And now we're at a point where they can kind of wait and see what happens, like credit, how tight is credit going to get and how much will that affect inflation? We might want to wait and see a little more. We might want to wait and see if you know, wages stop rising so quickly or if the job market weakens a little bit more. Like Let's just like chill for a second.
0: Exactly. And that was the, a little piece of good news in the uh, Jobs' report this week, as far as the Fed was concerned, is that wage inflation is still coming down. Um, it's lower than it has been basically since the, the pandemic. So the Fed likes to see that. Um, the big question, which I, I can't answer at all, and is very unclear, I think, even to the Fed, is you know to what degree does tightening credit actually slow the economy? To what degree does economic growth rely on borrowing? Mm. And I think there's a lot of interesting economic growth out there in the economy right now that is really consumer driven and doesn't require businesses borrowing lots of money. And if they don't need to borrow money to grow, then making it more expensive to borrow money or more difficult to borrow money isn't going to slow down the economy very much.
2: That's an interesting point. It makes me think about the housing market because the Fed raising rates absolutely crushed the housing market. Like no one, not no one, but. There's hardly any home sales going on right now, and most people are just like happily living in their houses with their low mortgage rates that they got before the the rate hiking started. And I guess before that all that happened, I had this, you know, very like financial crisis perspective of the housing market. Like, if the housing market craters, like everyone will die. Like (laughs) we (laughs) saw what happened last time, Um, but that's not at all what happened. It just like no one's taking out mortgages really are doing refinancing and it's it's hurt the mortgage industry but it hasn't really like cratered the economy in any kind of real way
0: well well the big difference between now and in 2007 is that house prices have not created like the number of because, sales because right, no one's
2: selling their house so we don't know no, what prices well, are well
0: you know, no one's selling their house so what you in terms of the supply and demand dynamics like there's always people who need to buy a house for whatever reason mm-hmm. and those people who need to buy a house are faced with much lower inventory than they normally would mm-hmm. see and so they are still being forced to pay high prices for a house just because no one wants to sell yeah, yeah. Um, and it does feel a little bit unsustainable and and there is a weird feeling there that like maybe the next tr- shoe is going to drop and prices are going to have to come down because affordability is off you know is is crazy right now given the prices of mortgages so. but But the one thing I've learned over and over again is that whenever someone predicts that, you know, such and such a financial effect is going to cause house prices to go down, whether it's, you know, the end of mortgage interest deductibility in the UK, or whether it's higher mortgage rates or whatever, like, it almost never does. Houses have this incredible ability to... Not go down in value, which is one of the reasons why the, the 2007 fall in house prices was, was such a shock. Like, no one, no one thought that houses could fall that much. And it turns out that, like, that was really exceptional and was really a function of a whole bunch of people having bought houses that they literally couldn't afford. You yeah, know? they had it was, it was to the, lose their homes. Well, it, no, but the point was they couldn't pay their mortgages. Right. Um, right now, everyone can pay their mortgage. Right. Like mortgage credit quality is off the charts. So as long as people are paying their mortgages, I don't know if we're going to see the house, you know, significant house price declines.
2: Right, so that's where like the credit tightening did doesn't really matter that much, you know.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah.
3: We're also not seeing rents come down, and that's that's an important part of the housing services category, which is another thing that people are looking at, so.
0: In fact, if you look at inflation, it rate rents are 100% of the housing um, component of inflation. Um, it's a weird quirk of the way that inflation is measured that what the statisticians do is if you're paying rent, they look at how much rent you're paying. And if you own your home, they work out what they call imputed rent, which is basically how much rent you're paying to yourself you know, for the value of your home. And they impute that rent from actual rents that people pay. Uh, the, the, what house prices, whether they're going up or down, have very little effect on inflation, whereas rents have a huge effect not just on renters but even on homeowners in terms of the way the CPI is calculated.
2: One thing that might be interesting to watch now in terms of inflation and cooling economy vibes is the student loan pause is finally unpausing. Speaking of pause and skip, we are <laughs> unpausing and not skipping. And because um, part of the debt the debt ceiling deal that just passed um, was that they couldn't pause anymore. So a lot of people are going to have to start making student loan payments that haven't had to do that in like three years, and that might actually slow things down a bit. Because I would. I would think that most people stopped sort of budgeting for that money. So they're gonna to have to find it in other ways and places that could theoretically slow down a little bit of discretionary spending. Maybe that is something the Fed is also watching. I don't know.
0: Yeah. that could could do, could do the Fed's job for it.
2: Yeah. There
0: Yay. you go. Thank 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 you, Joe Biden, for helping with fiscal policy. <laughs> what a Just bummer like though. If you haven't
2: paid you haven't paid that bill in three years and now you gotta pay it again. I don't know.
0: Emily's like, I don't know. I don't have any student loans. I'm too old for that shit.
2: (laughs) I paid my student loan off and then the following year I got a mortgage. So it was just like, what are you going to do? America.
0: Um, Let's move on and talk about China.
3: Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was
0: silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, at my computer. And I, I got people fracturing me. I got this and that. But I'm safe.
3: And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So... Elon Musk was in China this week. He gave a he was quoted as saying that the U.S. and China are like conjoined twins. They're so close and that relationship is so important. Whether he actually said that is a little bit unclear because he was only quoted in like an official Chinese press release. Um, Jamie Dimon was also in China. He gave a speech talking about how much he loves China and how much he wants J.P. Morgan to help Chinese people jp morgan is expanding very quickly in china it's doubled its headcount there in the past few years um tim cook was just in china giving a speech there and was warmly welcomed uh the big luxury goods magnates uh on their way to china and trying to shake hands with all the right ministers business in general is really trying very hard to be as friendly as possible to China and grow as fast as it can in China and make as much money as it can from China. And Emily, you are convinced that all of this is doomed because geopolitics.
2: Yeah. So even as all these CEOs heart China, the U.S. government doesn't heart China anymore. At least the the official rhetoric of the U.S. government is very anti-China right now. And we just had a G7 meeting. In Japan, where people were also not loving on China. And I just think if push comes to shove, the CEOs aren't going to win this one. But now that I'm talking about it, you know, maybe they will. We really still need China for the economy in <laughs> the U.S. to function. Everyone loves their cheap stuff. Um, I don't know. People love want inflation to come down. And if you if you cut out China, that's going to be a problem. But I still think at the end of the day, like if the U.S. government is making enemies with China, then the CEOs ultimately have to fall in line.
0: Yeah, if the US government tells NVIDIA that it's not allowed to sell its latest generation AI chips to China, then it's not allowed to sell its latest generation AI chips to China. And that is a huge potential market for those chips. Um, Now, I don't think that applies to Starbucks and Nike. You know, I don't think the US government Mm. sees a major national security threat in Chinese people drinking Starbucks. So maybe it depends what industry you're in.
3: Yeah, for tech CEOs, I think uh, to use internet parlance, they, they need to be frenemies with China, so they want some regulation, but they're still very dependent on China for manufacturing and materials and distribution. Oh,
0: I mean, if you're Tesla, you are completely reliant on China because you're basically a batteries company, and all of the batteries are made in China.
2: Right, and Apple too. I think they've tried to move some of their manufacturing out of China, but they still have a big a big chunk there.
0: Right, right? and and like. 40, you know, it's by far the, their second largest market, consumer market, you know. China is a huge source of demand for both Apple and Tesla, but also for, like, GM. GM sells more cars in China than it does in the U.S.
2: Right. I guess, I mean, like what we saw in, in Russia, like, we were okay with companies being in Russia up until they in, invaded Ukraine. Like, something really shocking would have to happen to really disrupt the corporate alliance with china
0: and when you say something really shocking you mean they would have to invade taiwan yeah yeah like at that point i think i agree all bets are off we just have no idea what the response would be among in in, you know in public opinion among governments and what kind of pressure would be would there be on companies to like leave china yeah it's it's a huge unknown i i genuinely have no idea Uh, on some level it was relatively painless for companies to leave russia no companies were that embedded in russia china is would be much more painful and i think people would be much more reluctant to do that yeah even in, the, even in the event of uh, an unprovoked invasion of Taiwan, which is definitely something that the G7 was worried about. You know, there was, there was a lot of talk in the G7 communique about, like, come on, people, can you stop building islands in the South China Sea and stop your territorial maximalism?
2: China basically took over Hong Kong and there was no invasion or anything. Can't,
0: exactly. can't and China that, do
2: like a soft takeover of Taiwan and then no one no. has to I mean, rush the, to its aid? So the, no, the, the big difference like, no, is I'm that,
0: learning, no, I mean, this is, no, it's, it's a really <laughs> good question, right? Um, what China did in Hong Kong over the, you know, at the height of the pandemic was really shocking mm-hmm. and I think was no one really expected it to be that aggressive and hong kong which was this bastion of freedom lost all of its freedoms more or less overnight and the response of the world to that was a lot of tutting and you know pro forma condemnations but nothing real and hong kong remains a major economic center and no one's boycotting hong kong and Life goes on, and I fear that China is going to learn exactly the wrong lesson from that. Now, the reason was that no one disputed that Hong Kong was part of China. And yes, China did have a treaty obligation to not do what it did, and it totally violated the the 1997 treaty with Britain, the one country, two systems thing. Um, But Hong Kong was clearly and unambiguously Part of China in the way that Taiwan is not. Like China will say that Taiwan is part of China. um, And, you know, the world's governments don't generally recognize Taiwan to be an independent country, but they definitely have made it clear that they're willing to defend its status with guns.
3: Don't you think that if China was willing to take that kind of risk, they would have aligned more heavily or or just aligned generally with, with Russia and the Ukrainian? I think war, they did. Or the war in the Ukraine? I mean, I think
0: that's exactly what they did.
3: Not the way people were anticipating. I mean, not the way they have historically. There was a hesitancy to give them arms. They're not funding Russia the way Ukraine is being funded.
0: Right. China's not like literally giving Russia money, but the trade between russia and china china's built buying a huge amount of russian oil you know that trade is still going strong china is not has not condemned the invasion and you know there's a very interesting dance going on right now between china russia and india like chinese indian relations are particularly bad right now which is interesting um India has a relatively, you know, opportunistic, I would say, relationship with Russia. They're happy trading with Russia as well. They haven't condemned the invasion. Um, And none of them really like each other, but they're all, all of them at the same time understand that they would like there to be some alternative to u.s hegemony none of them particularly want to live in a unipolar world where the only country that matters is the united states meanwhile the united states really wants to maintain its unipolar hegemonic domination and so it's an interesting sort of dance that like you know india russia and china aren't completely cooperating but they're not not cooperating in terms of trying to create some kind of but you know alternative poll to America.
2: They're like frenemies, to use Elizabeth's word. <laughs> the, the enemy of my enemy is mm-hmm. my friend.
0: They have, everyone has so many enemies these days. It's, important, it's impossible to keep it.
2: A... Keep your friends close, keep your frenemies closer.
0: Exactly. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, numbers round. Elizabeth, do you have a number?
3: Uh, yeah, my number is... Five million, and that's dollars and that's the prize pool for major league pickleball which wow. I just you, how today many is thing Wow. Exists. five million dollars five million dollars and for pickleball there is now a major league pickleball how, how many, uh, how, many different,
0: how many different people are going to share this five million dollars of pickleball
3: I, no idea <laughs> this is a the, the major league pickleball league is run by brian levine who's a former Goldman sachs partner and this is fairly new so unclear how big the pickleball market is Where's the i want to
0: know like if i'm a pickleball player how much money can i make playing pickleball is there is there like are there massive sponsorship deals as well is nike gonna have like nike pickleball
2: <laughs> you play pickleball right felix
0: i tried to play it once but i was it turns out I was on the wrong kind of tennis court. It was like a clay court and the ball oh. didn't bounce the right way. <laughs> but I, I have aspirations to pickleballing.
2: I would like to
3: play. Central Park is going to add 14 pickleball courts
2: this year, I think. Oh, you're never um, going to be able to book one of those. Yeah,
0: there's no way I'm going to be. Yeah, that, that, that's going to be a whole thing. Um, My number is 8. 7.3 million, which is the number of self-employed workers in America, according to the latest household survey. This is people who just work for themselves but haven't set up a business. And that number is the lowest it's been since the pandemic. In fact, it's lower than it was pre-pandemic. Um, obviously, it fell down enormously during that brief recession of April 2020. But there was a big boom in self-employment in 2021. Everyone was YOLOing it and going, I'm going to work for myself and do my own thing. And some of those decisions worked out. And a lot of those people then incorporated and became actual companies. And others of those decisions didn't work out. And they just decided to stop being self-employed and get a job because there's lots of jobs out there. And now people aren't quitting their jobs and going self-employed so much. Also, the writer strike is playing into this. Like a lot of writers um, are self employed, but also unemployed. So we have a particularly low number of self employed people in America right now. It's down 369,000 in one month, which is even bigger than the rise in payrolls.
2: Hmm. It's like a good news, bad news kind of number. Yeah. Because some people probably are better off with jobs than like selling candles or something.
0: Exactly. You know, bit, you know try, trying to make their way as an Instagram influencer.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a rough life. And there's no union.
0: Oh, my God. Can you imagine the influencers' union?
2: I would love to see it.
0: <laughs> um, Emily, what's your number?
2: I have two, like, joke numbers I'm deciding between. I'm going to go with $45,000. Right. Okay. That's the average price of a cold plunge pool sold by diamond spas and pools in Frederick, Colorado. There's a big story in The Wall Street Journal this week about the hottest new home amenity, the cold plunge pool. Um, people who have million dollar and plus homes and whatnot are building these and they're like spa rooms, you know, they have saunas, they maybe have regular pools. Now they have cold plunge pools. and these are pools of cold water that people, Plunge into. into. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, for wealthy For like a minute, yep, for 45 yep. seconds to a minute, because it's supposed to be like good for you,
0: I well, guess. Is, isn't there some like dutch guy called vim or something who's really into like cold probably. swimming and cold water yeah but probably, is, isn't yeah. that also always how saunas are supposed to work you go in the sauna and then you jump into a piece of cold water i don't yeah know.
2: yeah no it, it is sounds, there's always been a cold finish. plunge there's yeah. always been a cold plunge but now there are more cold plunges and oh, they're okay. in people's homes and you know people are saying things like you're activating your body system by plunging in the cold and it's good for your this or that and it speeds your recovery time and athletes like it and it's just the the latest thing, and I just want to say I, I don't a like A
3: cold it. bath is not a good substitute. You can do
2: a cold plunge in, in your cold in a bathtub, but it's not. Then you haven't spent the forty five thousand dollars. So like, what are you even what are you even doing, Elizabeth?
0: <laughs> um, Emily, do you think forty five thousand is a lot for a cold plunge pool?
2: I do, because you only spend like forty five seconds in the thing every day. Like, you know, get a regular pool. Get a. I'm a big hot tub kind. of I, I like a hot plunge. You know what I mean? The cold is. Ugh, I'm just not. It's not for me.
0: Would you like a hot plunge pool?
2: Yeah. that's Isn't that like what a hot tub is, Felix? That's
0: a hot tub. Yeah, yeah. I would like <laughs> a hot
2: plunge pool. I,
0: I feel like a hot tub is more... <laughs> your typical hot plunge pool is more expensive than 45000 I might be wrong about that.
2: Oh, I don't know. I could Google it now, but I'm not going to because it's the end of the show. And people can do that themselves. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not the end of the show. We have a Slate Plus segment coming up on what cinemas are doing to try and get people back into cinemas. But... For those of you out there, we love you too, who don't listen to Slate Plus, who aren't subscribed to Slate Plus. That is actually the end of the show. Thank you to Patrick Fort for producing. We are not back on Monday with another Succession podcast because Succession is over. It is very sad. Mm -hmm. Um, But at some point, we will come back with movies or villains or something like that. But yeah, for the time being, you're going to have to wait another week before the very next Slate Money.